Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney, recording today here in Amiskachewa Skygun, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory on the banks of the mighty Kasiskasawanisipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today is Joshua Seeley Harrington. Joshua is an assistant professor at the Lincoln Alexander School of Law at Toronto Metropolitan University, which you might know uh, was the university formerly known as Ryerson. Joshua teaches law students um, and can actually explain what critical race theory is. Um, so if you ever actually like <laughs> running into people who are like, what the fuck? Um, yeah, go read some of what Joshua has written about it. It's actually quite clear and awesome. Uh, Josh is also not just a legal scholar. He has been lead counsel on cases before the Supreme Court of Canada. And according to his TMU bio that I am drawing from for this intro, he uh, a majority of his legal practice involves pro bono and low bono work for nonprofits and individuals promoting human rights and social justice, just the kind of lawyer that we like to see. Uh, he There's even an Alberta connection. Joshua grew up in Calgary and got his JD from the University of Calgary. And I found out actually in our little pre-interview that Joshua is an alum of both the same junior high and high school as myself. So Joshua, welcome to the pod and uh, go uh, Trojans. Yeah, go Ab- go William Eberhardt Trojans. <laughs> uh, no, I'm very happy to be on the pod and in conversation with a fellow hashtag Abe Babe. <laughs> oh yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah, that was a good one. Abe, <laughs> Abe was, I feel like we got Abe as the like short form of the high school, but we really, in my adulthood, I only refer to William Eberhardt as Bible Bill. And I feel like Bible fair, Bill High, fair. I feel like Bible Bill High could have taken off if I had known who the hell William Eberhardt was when I was 17 years old. But, you know, th- that is the way youth goes sometimes. Well, and I imagine the administration at William Eberhardt probably wanted to suppress its namesake <laughs> for its own reputational considerations. Yeah, a bit of a crank, a uh, bit of an anti-Semite, yes. bit of a bad person. But yeah, let's. Exactly. Uh, this show is this this show is not here to talk about William Aberhart High, or anything that William Aberhart may have done. We are here to talk about um, something that's actually quite serious and something that mm. is uh, sweeping the nation, unfortunately, <laughs> which is uh, sweeping the suppression, the world. sweeping the world. Yeah, that's fair to say. Which is the suppression uh, of pro-Palestinian speech. Um, there's, you can call it a new era of McCarthyism. You can call it just, you know, anti-Palestinian kind of like, I don't know what the right, I don't know, I don't know if the, I don't know if a right, a term has been coined for it yet, but essentially anyone or any institution here in Canada that has expressed support or solidarity with Palestinians as they undergo kind of the ruthless slaughter from the Israeli state, uh, in that conflict, they are people are getting fired, people are um, getting censured, as we saw with Sarah Jama. Uh, you know, all sorts of consequences. People are being arrested. All sorts of consequences are being meted out by the powers that be when the people, when people out there express kind of pro-Palestinian solidarity. And so, uh, there's two kind of big vectors of battle here that I think we want to talk about on this pod. And that is um, universities and that is criminal charges, the, the, the criminal courts. Um, we're going to leave the criminal courts for later in the pod. Why don't we start with the universities? And I think the scandal that you've been dealing with at your university, Joshua, it, it really does show is really a good example of this kind of like anti-Palestinian um, kind of, suppression in action. Why don't you walk us through kind of what's been happening at TMU, uh, especially in, in even in your faculty, in the Faculty of Law? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. And, and I'll say at the outset, you said earlier, um, you're trying to, you're grasping at, you know, what do we call this? Um, and have people been trying to develop an understanding of what to call it? Um, and there's actually a really good report from the Arab Canadian Lawyers Association uh, on anti-Palestinian racism that goes into detailing, you know, what it is and how it's used and its history and its current practices. Um, so that report is, is really a, a helpful thing to go to for talking about it. Um, but yes, we've been witnessing at my own law school, um, a, like archetypal example of uh, anti-Palestinian speech suppression. Um, essentially, there was a, a group of students 
who were who shared a letter with the senior administration um, making demands of the administration um, against the backdrop of its relative silence on Palestinian liberation in the context of Israel's illegal siege on Gaza. Um, and an important thing to know about my law school, TMU, or Lincoln Alexander, um, it's a law school that specifically markets itself um, to the public in relation to racial justice. Um, and I imagine that's something that uh, informed the students' frustration with how the administration was responding to what was going on in Gaza. Um, and so they shared a letter with the senior administration. That letter was leaked outside of the university, and that precipitated a rapid series of events, um, which fits quite neatly into this idea of um, so the suppression of speech in solidarity with Palestine. There's essentially a massive right-wing harassment campaign of doxing uh, of many students at TMU. Um, and shortly thereafter, the senior administration released a statement um, unequivocally denouncing what is effectively one-sixth of the student body is anti-Semitic um, by virtue of the statement that they released. Um, and that, of course, further facilitated more harassment of the students. Um, they've lost jobs. There's an absolute climate of suppression of pro-Palestinian speech at the university. Um, and now more recently, the Central University, as opposed to the law school, is launching an external review where it's bringing in a private investigator to essentially, I guess, uh, analyze whether he considers the student's pro-Palestinian statement anti-Semitic, um, and then what punishments uh, the students should receive, why a university would hire a private investigator to tell the university how to interpret its own code of conduct um, is beyond me, <laughs> but that is the current situation uh, that's happening right now. And, and yeah, the reprisal against students, against pro-Palestinian faculty has been uh, monumental. Yeah, like I've seen Howard Levitt, uh, like a prominent conservative lawyer, you know, essentially, I think he, I think he had an open letter as well. It was competing open letters for a while there, where he was like, uh, got a bunch of people to sign on. Essentially, he, if I'm to paraphrase what he said, it was like, any law student who signed this lawyer won't get a job with me or anyone who thinks like me. And that kind of like threat um, of like cancellation of future employment is is serious. That's a that's a serious threat from a powerful established lawyer in the field and then um you know and then and then not, not not only is there that threat but then there's also just what's been happening to the, the the people who did sign the letter you're talking about the harassment the doxing uh maybe it, it's worth a minute to just talk about what the letter said um it it is not hateful nor is it anti-semitic what did it actually call for and what what criticisms did it make of israel yeah, so the letter by the students, um, it included, um, I mean, so it's, it's a, the letter includes a lot of things. Um, mm -hmm. it, there, there's two passages in the letter, well, or let me put it this way, there's two components of the letter that results in um, the opposition that some have uh, presented to it. One aspect of the letter is that it is, um, it's avowedly anti-Zionist, um, right? So the letter is very uh, critical of the Israeli state, um, very critical of its occupation of apartheid, of genocide. Um, and so there have been actually a lot of people just grabbing, you know, especially in right-wing um, uh, media, who have been grabbing onto statements from the letter, uh, criticizing Israel, um, or characterizing Israel, but also Canada as ultimately um, settler colonies. Um, and so there's been some people grabbing onto that. That's simply the students' anti-colonial perspective uh, and their critique of Israel's um, violation of Palestinian human rights. Um, another component of the letter is there's a passage in the letter that refers to support for all forms of Palestinian resistance. Um, and this too is, uh, is being very uncharitably misinterpreted by a lot of people engaging with the letter. Um, if you read the letter as a whole, which I would recommend lawyers do, as that's part of how we do legal interpretation. Um, the letter includes a reference to Hamas's attack on October 7th uh, and describes that attack as a war crime. Um, I'd say a pejorative way of describing <laughs> what happened on October 7th. Um, but the letter still says that it stands in support of all forms of Palestinian resistance. Um, and so 
how do you reconcile the description of October 7th as involving war crimes with support for Palestinian resistance? Uh, you do that by understanding, uh, if you understand Palestinian resistance and how it's existed in the context of 75 years of occupation, um, as having drawn on multiple forms, right? There are diplomatic forms of resistance. There are economic forms of resistance like BDS. Um, and yes, there's also, uh, you know, military or violent forms of resistance, right? We're currently witnessing tanks from the IDF wandering down into Gaza, um, and you're seeing violent resistance. You're seeing Hamas responding, not with diplomatic calls, um, but they're meeting the violence of the Israeli state with their own violence. Um, and it's important to know that in the context even of international law, um, that there is a right to resist. Um, that's not an unqualified right. It's not that you know you can commit any violence against anyone without any form of scrutiny. Um, but to interpret the student's letter, which supports all forms of resistance and which simultaneously calls October 7th a war crime, as saying they just support any violence committed in any context by anyone, um, is is a ruthlessly uncharitable interpretation. It totally evacuates the term resistance of meaning. Um, and I'd say that interpretation is actually itself racist, right? Taking a statement from a group of students, predominantly uh, racialized students, many Arab, Muslim, South Asian students, um, who are saying they support Palestinian resistance and saying they must support any violence committed anywhere by some abstract brown person, um, is itself trading in Orientalist tropes. Um, and I think what we've been seeing in the interpretation of this letter is a lot of racist interpretation of what the students were calling for, which is for a ceasefire and for an end to the genocide that's being committed in Gaza. Yeah, like what we're going to see in this example and all of the other examples we're going to discuss is the constant and and uh, on-purpose conflation of anyone criticizing the state of Israel of anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism. And, mm-hmm. and so like that, when you, when actors, you know, especially Zionists or just powerful people, you know, bow to this kind of interpretation of what anti-Semitism is, it, that has knock on effects, like, like that it is bad that, that when you kind of seed the ground of like any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitism, then, um, you know, we're getting into like scary territory. Right. Well, it's, it's I mean, it's it's territory, which is uh, I want to be very clear on this, which is bad for everyone. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, it, you know, it's bad for it's bad for Palestinians and their allies. They certainly want to be able to talk about and critique even intemperately um, the actions of the Israeli state. You know, the fact that we're having so much conversation about this right now in the midst of genocide is part of what's just been mind boggling. Right. We, we have we have unquestionably the material conditions of incalculable violence happening in Gaza. And the legal profession in Toronto has been very heavily concentrated on the wording of this statement in opposition to that genocide, as opposed to the genocide, which by the way, the Canadian government is economically, diplomatically and militaristically supporting. So, you know, as one problem, we are so absurdly focused on the wrong thing that we need to be focused on. Um, so obviously, you know, Palestinians and their allies um, are going to oppose a definition of anti-Semitism um, that conflates with anti-Zionism. Um, there's a lot of Jewish opposition to, uh, you know, what's termed the International Holocaust Remembrance Association definition of anti-Semitism, um, precisely on account of it collapsing anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. Uh, and the reason for that is very clear and basic. It's that if you empty anti-Semitism of meaning, your ability to challenge actual anti-Semitism is made all the more complicated. And so principled opponents of anti-Semitism don't want to empty it of meaning. What they want to do is they want it to be defined rigorously and clearly so that it can be challenged in tandem with supporting Palestinian liberation. There's actually no conceptual or philosophical need to put these groups against one another, right? You can support liberation of all different racial minorities. Um, and uh, that conflation of anti-Semitism and, and anti-Zionism, it's premised on the opposite of that, that to ever advance Palestinian rights is necessarily to act in a racist way against Jewish people. And that's simply not true. And all of the Jewish organizations that exist, of which that are many that are leading marches across the world against what Israel's doing, who are adamantly opposing 
the IRA definition of anti-Semitism, those speak to the obvious fact that um, you do not have to protect the state of Israel in order to oppose anti-Semitism. They're simply two different things. Yeah. And when it comes to you know, the media and the the Toronto legal community and the like the eyeballs and the column inches and whatever kind of metric of attention that you want to put or want to kind of focus on when it comes to this story, it certainly is advantageous for, you know, again, the people you mentioned, the government of Canada, the, the military industrial establishment that we're all focusing on like an open letter that some fucking university students wrote rather than the fact that the, the state of Canada is complicit in the ongoing genocide of what, 15 to 20,000 people in Gaza with that number set to go up again once this short ceasefire ends. And honestly, that number is probably going to go up the more people they find buried under buildings. And, you know, university students are a very easy distraction. It, the, the stories are easy to write but it does not actually reckon with kind of Canada's involvement in that. Like are, we have soldiers there right now. There's special force guys, JTF two guys in Israel at this very moment. Right. No, of course. And I mean, there's a famous Tony Morrison quote about uh, the serious function of racism being distraction. Um, and the last month and a half has been, a, you know, an emblem of that. It's, it's been unbelievable how much, inability there has been in Canadian public discourse to do basic triage in our analysis, <laughs> like just basic prioritization of what we are talking about and how we are talking about it. I feel like the National Post is releasing like two articles a day on these uh, 76 students at TMU who spoke out against genocide. Um, it, it's frankly outrageous. And, and part of why that distraction is needed is because if you look at what's happening in Gaza, it is indefensible. Yeah, whatever you right? do, don't yeah, look. It, don't look too hard at what's right? happening in Gaza. You will, you will start bawling. You will be affected. Like it, it, no, no, it exactly. Will affect you. That's also. I mean, that's also why. That's also why Israel's killing so many journalists in Gaza. Right. Like, mm -hmm. like, like the. It's very clear that if you uh, are looking at what is happening in Gaza, there is no defense of it. Even if you have. A variety of different political perspectives on Israel and Palestine. You know, I certainly have my own views, um, but regardless of those views, to be to to look soberly at what's happening in Gaza and say that it is proportionate or defensible or even roughly aligned with a basic conception of human dignity is impossible. And so, of course, we're talking about university students, right? Of course, we're talking about all of these other things as opposed to the very obvious and overwhelming uh, crisis, uh, genocide that is unfolding in Gaza. Yeah. And we had our own version of this story, this university kind of level story that happened in Toronto here in Edmonton. Uh, here in Edmonton, a woman named Samantha Pearson, the executive director of the University of Alberta Sexual Assault Center, was uh, fired on a Saturday afternoon by press release after she allegedly signed a petition that expressed solidarity with Palestine. And the signing of that petition, she, she not only signed it or allegedly signed it, um, uh, as well as the name of the Sexual Assault Center. And this signing, uh, alleged signing, attracted the attention of an online Zionist mob um, who were very mad at the fact that the, again, the like 800 words of the petition mentioned the, quote, unverified accusation that Palestinians were guilty of sexual violence. And that was, then again, not reading the whole text, not reading anything, just saying, oh, yeah, that one sentence means that this person who works at a sexual assault center is essentially saying that all sexual violence committed by Hamas didn't happen. And that, um, of course, again, a very uncharitable reading. And this story kind of went quickly international, right? The Daily Mail, the Times of Israel. Did this kind of break into your media bubble as well, Joshua? No, no, it did. I've been, I've been, I mean, I've been primarily as, as a um, rare uh, and avowedly pro-Palestinian voice on my law faculty. I've been mostly preoccupied with the attacks on my students, <laughs> but I've been, I've been generally following the, um, the, the like wave of suppression, including what, what recently happened at the University of Alberta. So a bit of context about the firing of Samantha Pearson that you won't find in the news coverage that was out there primarily about this is that that the same online mob of Zionists who got Samantha Pearson fired also forced the U of A Sexual Assault Center to delete an Instagram post about a week earlier 
that referenced a pro-Palestine walkout. So like this, this organization was kind of already under watch and kind of people, uh, these, these online Zionists had already kind of like known about it. Um, Here's a big one, a bit of context that I never saw reported anywhere. Samantha Pearson's name was spelled wrong on the petition. Um, I don't know how often you spell your name wrong, but I don't, I <laughs> don't spell my name very often. Um, uh, anyone can sign a Google form position. Uh, this was like a Google form petition. Like this was like, uh, there was no like identity verification done. Um, Samantha mm-hmm. Pearson herself has issued no public statements about this. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Pearson was fired on a Saturday afternoon after the online mob kind of reached a fever pitch with the publishing of a Daily Mail article as well as a post-media article. And uh, the university has not answered any of my questions on how they verified that it was Samantha Pearson who signed the petition. And like leaving aside the content of the letter, which I don't really want to get into, we already kind of like, again, kind of fisking these letters and what online Zionists find wrong with them is probably not worth our time. Um, But like, the letter, I will just say this, that like the letter itself is fine. And that like the IDF has over and over uh, lied about what happened. And that like, while sexual violence like happens in war and conflict, uh, what the mob and what was kind of taken in front of her statement was again, an extremely uncharitable, uh, you know, one sentence out of a thing that like a person that, that a person may or may not have signed. And so that's, that's, that's that. But all that aside, Joshua, is all that context that I referenced and that was missing from the other, um, from the online reporting on this, was that, is that interesting to you at all? Do you think that's relevant potentially? Yeah. So there's been such an interesting fixation on, on context in the current moment <laughs> and, and, and with my students and, and in the context of what you're describing, you know, as a leftist scholar, uh, context is always interesting to me. Right? I'm actually interested in understanding the world, um, not blanket denials or condemnations that stifle analysis. Um, and so, yeah, I am interested in context. I am interested in reading documents as a whole. Um, I'm interested in the past and the present and future. Um, and what we've seen recently, especially in the context of October 7th and the ensuing siege on Gaza, is uh, you know I've literally read tweets where people describe context as itself anti-Semitic. Right. <laughs> the, the desire to right the desire to understand why something happened as anti-Semitic. And, and the way that this is done is through a very specific rhetorical maneuver. Right. The idea is to inquire into context is to excuse or justify what happened, um, which is just not what words mean. Right. Like like let's let's say. Right. I, I think many people have some reservations about what happened on October 7th. Um, and so if you oppose what happened on October 7th, on what planet could you not want to understand what led to that? Right. The reason why so many Zionists are opposed to that context is because it's 75 years of brutal military occupation. Right. Like that's the reason why they don't want to analyze that context. It's a context that's not sympathetic to Israel. And so in the same way we're talking about, you know, my students, as opposed to the siege in Gaza, it's a desire to obfuscate the very obvious um uh, political context for all of what is happening right now, which is not sympathetic to Israel. Um, and you can do the same thing with uh, with this uh, signing of this petition at the University of Alberta, right? Um, a lot of what you're seeing in recent attacks on pro-Palestinian statements is very small excerpts, little passages, clauses, um, even in the context of the TMU student letter, right? Um, there is literally a passage two paragraphs later contradicting the interpretation that so many people are putting onto the document. But that doesn't matter, right? Grab the one passage and then run that passage off a cliff in order to make the political point. Um, And so I think that's happening here too, right? When you look at reports of sexual violence in the context of um, October 7th, there is a lot of mixed reporting, right? We're dealing with a military that is well known for misrepresenting what happens. Um, And so the idea that some skepticism around um, Israel's reporting or the IDF's reporting about what happened, especially when that reporting is directly related to its putative justification for the genocide it's currently committing in Gaza, um, is something which is reasonably sub- uh, subject to analysis and critique. Um, and so I just don't think, right, I, I think we're seeing a similar pattern here as we're seeing with the, with the TMU student letter. We're seeing what is ultimately a, a political battle over what Israel's doing in Gaza, 
and people trying in every possible way to obscure actual engagement with what is happening in order to permit um, implicitly or explicitly Israel's continued siege on Gaza. And these are just two examples of kind of like post-secondary pro-Palestinian speech being suppressed. We could have picked out a half a dozen others. Uh, I think there's so many. They're yeah, all they're all over. Yeah, and and they are just again they do, they do follow this pattern that you talked about, and and I think if I was to kind of like just have a closing thought on these universities that are trying to shut down pro-Palestinian speech is that all eleven universities in Gaza have been bombed by Israel. Some of them are mm-hmm. in absolute ruins. Like we'll, mm-hmm. we'll we'll have to be rebuilt from scratch if they are ever rebuilt. Nearly mm-hmm. ninety thousand post secondary students in Gaza are unable to attend university due to the ongoing siege that is happening there. Um, you know, while Zionists are concentrating on getting people fired here at in uh, you know in, in universities in Canada, the very concept of post secondary education is being eradicated by the Israeli state for Palestinian people in Gaza. And I think that is an important point to remember when we are talking about university students saying oh. pro-Palestinian things. No, no, for sure. And, and, and to me, again, right, the, um, the, the, the gross disproportionality of what Israel is currently doing in Gaza, right, the unquestionable collective punishment that the civilian population in Gaza is currently experiencing um, is something which basic humanity should absolutely unite around, right? N- name, name the name the group, and it should be opposed to what's going on, right? As you said, every university in Gaza bond. Yeah, universities should be right speaking out yeah. um, from the standpoint of academic freedom, free inquiry, the safety of students. Easy call, right? Look at all the hospitals that have been sieged. Doctors should be obviously speaking out. It shouldn't even relate, right, to yeah. the idea of one's granular politics on Israel and Palestine. If the Israeli state is, you know, devastating the medical infrastructure of a captive population, it should not be complicated for doctors to come out against that, right? If you're a feminist, right, there's a recent statement signed by a bunch of feminist organizations in Canada, right? The the nature of violence and devastation against women and children in Gaza is unbelievable, right? It should be very easy to sign a statement in support of a ceasefire from a feminist standpoint, right? Regardless of your politics and the different issues that you prioritize, we are literally witnessing a genocide. The whole, the, the whole point of the idea of genocide is its categorical indefensibility. And I think that's why we're seeing such an aggressive McCarthyist campaign. Right. What is happening cannot be justified. And so how do you beat it? You cannot beat it on the train of ideas. You cannot justify genocide in Gaza on the train of ideas. You justify it through silence. And that is what we are seeing. We're seeing an attempt to not allow people to talk about what is going on in Gaza. And the fact that it is a political maneuver is so apparent based on how it is enacted. Right grabbing these thin phrases out of context and then amplifying them and repeating the lie over and over and over again until people are either convinced or confused and then don't know how to engage with what's happening. Um, And so I I, I think these are simply examples of that indefensibility and the only maneuver you have left, which is silence. Yeah. I mean, what you described is exactly why I have... Uh, such seething contempt for the profession of which I'm a part of journalism, where, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the Israeli regime is just murdering journalists left, right, and center. And exactly. Western journalists can't be bothered to say, oh, this is a bad thing. And it's like, well, this is, well, and it's a similarity between journalism and law, right? Is notions of objectivity, right? Like, like uh, what, what you see in both, you know, professions or industries is the idea of how important it is to be objective. And what you see in the context of something like the genocide in Gaza is the weaponization of, of notions of objectivity, right? You're seeing journalists in newsrooms all over the place who want to talk about or even simply name a Palestine being, list, being labeled as biased, right? What's happening to my, to my law students at TMU? They come out with a forceful statement against the genocide in Gaza. They're labeled anti-Semitic. Right. This, this this process of labeling of bias of anti-Semitism against people speak 
merely speaking in support of Palestinian liberation, or even, right, Palestinian resistance, which is legitimate, um, it is doing that exact work. Whether or not it's in journalism or law, the idea is you wield objectivity to silence people, when in actuality, the objective analysis is that it's a genocide, <laughs> right? Like, that is actually what's happening, and people should be speaking out against it. Yeah. And it's not just at universities where pro-Palestinian speech is being policed. The the police are literally arresting people and putting people in prison uh, over pro-Palestinian speech uh, here in Calgary, where we both grew up. We have the case of Wassam Wassam Kouli, who also goes by the name of Wassam Khaled. He is an organizer with uh, Justice for Palestinians, the Calgary branch. He was the co-organizer of a march, a pro-Palestinian march in Calgary in November. And him and several of the other organizers met with the Calgary police service in advance of their event to say, hey, is that right if we say, you know, the chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free? Um, you know, the CPS assured him that it was. You know, Wesson was kind of the MC for the event. And in the video that we have of him saying it, he even talks about this conversation with the cops. They, like, they said it was okay for me to say it. And then he, you know, he screams it. He leads the crowd at the chant. And then after the rally, he is arrested by the Calgary police for disturbing the peace and not just disturbing the peace, but disturbing the peace with a hate crime modifier attached, um, mm-hmm. which is unique and like usually uh, not announced kind of right away, but the, the Calgary police are a special bunch. And then of course, less than a week later, uh, the charge was dropped after a crown prosecutor actually got to look at the case <laughs> Um uh, Joshua, what, thankfully, <laughs> yeah, thankfully, uh, thankfully, there is a good end to this one, unlike some of the other cases that we were talking about. Joshua, you're mm-hmm. the lawyer here. Uh, what charter rights did the Calgary police violate here, and and should they have known better? Right. So, I mean, yes, one, they should obviously know better. Um, and and this this, uh, I mean, there's a lot of charter rights that you can bring up in the context <laughs> of this arrest, uh, but. The, the two that I'll concentrate on, uh, one is uh, Section 2B on free expression. Um, and this is an easy case, right? This is, a, this is a very simple analysis. You're not just talking about expression, you know, in the abstract. You're talking about political expression against ongoing war crimes that are diplomatically, economically, and militaristically supported by the Canadian state. Right. The idea that it is criminal to uh, participate in anti-war chants uh, is like the absolute core of what free expression is about. You know, free expression as a charter right relates to many other forms of political expression, uh, many other forms of expression as well. But political protest, so much of the jurisprudence and scholarship around the idea of free expression as a constitutional right is based in the context of political protest, which is exactly when, and and political protest in the context of war, which is exactly when the state will jettison individual rights for its own, um, for its own interests, right? So we're we're looking at, you know, a a very, a very clear case of state repression of, of exceedingly legitimate political speech. Um, So that's one charter, right? Another charter, right, um, which is, is implicated is section 15 or equality, right? Free, uh, from the river to the sea is a, is a call for Palestinian liberation. Um, and so this isn't just about, you know, at one level, we're talking about, um, speech that relates to, um, critique of the Canadian state and its complicity in Israeli war crimes. Uh, at another level, we're talking about a state of significant, uh, uh, sorry, a statement of significant symbolic, rhetorical, political, spiritual significance to Palestinians and their allies, right? To Arab nationalism more broadly. Um, And what we're seeing uh, in the context of this arrest is not just suppression of anti-war speech, but racist suppression of speech that specifically advances the interests of a uh, demonstrably persecuted racial minority. Given that context, we're also looking at not just inappropriate police conduct, but racist police conduct, right? In the same way that uh, my students and their announced support for Palestinian resistance is being, through an Orientalist lens, interpreted as their support of any violence in any context whatsoever, which is absurd. This statement, right, is being interpreted as some call to violence when if you actually read, you know, attend a rally or read a book, 
on Palestinian resistance and Palestinian organizing and protests, then you know that this call, that this statement um, in the vast majority of contexts and in its calls recently in North America relates to Palestinian liberation, right? Relates to an end to occupation, apartheid, and now genocide in Gaza. If you cannot chant in support for basic dignity for the human rights of Palestinians, um, right, that's an affront to the constitutional rights that we're meant to have within Canada's liberal democracy. Yeah. I mean, and darkly hilarious, in a darkly hilarious turn, the next week at the next protest, the Calgary police, who were perhaps more than a little embarrassed over the situation, took out their frustration on pro-Palestinian marchers uh, who had kind of like separated out from the main group. And there is video of cops ripping off a hijab and throwing a pregnant woman to the ground on top of numerous other acts of police brutality, all because this like little splinter group was blocking a road for a short period. Um, you know, I wrote and reported on this uh, extensively. And in my coverage, I was really the only journalist to discuss that this isn't the first time that the Calgary police had charged a uh, racialized person with a hate crime only for it to be trapped uh, quite quickly, actually, uh, once a prosecutor saw it. Not just a racialized person with a hate crime, but a racialized political activist with a hate crime, <laughs> only for it to be trapped <laughs> quite, quite quickly. Um, because back in the summer, uh, Adora Nofor, the president of BLM Calgary, was charged with a hate crime after an incident, after a pro-2S LGBTQ protest outside of a Catholic, Catholic high school. Um, again, like in the Wissam Khaled case, the Crown Prosecutor dropped the case quickly, uh, the CPS kind of hilariously called it a clerical error. But the thing about this case is that very unfortunately, Adora Nofor and her friend and colleague, Taylor McNally, are facing still facing many, many charges, three charges for Adora Nofor, 16 charges and two separate lawsuits by Calgary police officers against Taylor McNally. And this is um, commonly like the, the rally or the uh, campaign to have this kind of like have these charges drop is called Stop the Stack. And they're making the point that like what is happening to these two black women who do a lot of important anti-police organizing in Calgary is uh, that this is charge stacking. And can you maybe explain kind of what charge stacking is and why the police and prosecutors use it in cases like these? Yeah, so this this relates to, you know, all the different things we're discussing all relate to these, this theme of gross disproportionality, right? Um, whether or not it's students releasing an open letter and then facing extremely harsh reprisal, um, whether or not it's what we're seeing literally in Gaza and the collective punishment that we're seeing. This, this response, this totally heavy-handed response is, is tactical, right? It's meant to intimidate. It's meant to complicate the defense that they advance. It's meant to encourage a plea deal, right? So charge stacking in the context of criminal punishment is, is exactly what these two are experiencing, where you have what in, you know, the ordinary course might result in a couple charges instead you get way more put on right what does that do it increases the gravity of the circumstance facing these activists right they're dealing with more charges potentially um, a greater sentence uh, a more complicated defense that they have to mount um, it just looks more intimidating right it's it's intuitive that if you're charged with one crime or 16 um that 16 looks bad it looks more right it's a scarier thing to confront um and so what we're seeing is the Canadian state in context of, you know, radical activism acting out in, in, you know, what I would argue is attempting to intimidate these forms of activism, right? We, we also saw this with, I know we're going to talk about it later in the context of the, um, in the context of the Indico bookstore, um, but there too, we're seeing really harsh, you know, unusually aggressive response from the Canadian state because it doesn't want to see this activism. Right. And how do you do that? You make people afraid. It's the same. You know, it's very similar. It's different, but it's very similar to what's happening at my law school. If there's really strict reprisal against student political expression, how are other students going to feel about future political expression? Right. You know, the legal profession has spoken. My senior administration has spoken. People are now afraid. And so what, what you see as actually this is performing an overarching disciplinary function. It's you know, it's getting people in line so that they don't act out, so that they are uh, more compliant with the state. And I think all of these different circumstances that we're talking about are ultimately part of that broader state project. We're in the, we're in the midst of a genocide, which Canada is active, you know, is complicit in, 
of course it is clamping down all across the board because it's going to see lots of popular opposition to what is happening. Yeah, yeah, and you mentioned the Toronto Indigo case. Let's let's get into it because the we're recording this on uh, Friday afternoon on November twenty fourth, and and just today, an incredible piece of journalism from the breach came out that detailed <laughs> essentially how much resources were put into arresting the um, several people. I think eleven people total. Uh, with mischief over 5,000 and conspiracy to commit an indictable offense over the alleged vandalism of a Indigo bookstore in downtown Toronto. These uh, Indigo bookstores essentially had uh, pieces of paper glued on the windows, and I believe red paint splashed on the windows and on the sidewalk. Uh, yeah, the, the details are disturbing. I'm just going to read from the from the, the <laughs> breach story here. Please because, do. <laughs> because it, these were no-knock raids, like... Uh, on Wednesday at 5.30 a.m., Charmaine Khan woke up to a police officer in her bedroom, shining a flashlight in her face. Soon there were several officers in her hallway. Ordered to get up, police watched her and her partner get dressed before she was handcuffed. The apartment of the Toronto bookkeeper and educator was then searched and ransacked, drawers emptied, laundry dumped on her bed, dozens of posters removed from poster tubes and scattered around the apartment. Across the city, a half dozen other people were also having their homes raided. Front doors were broken, computers and cell phones were confiscated, and anyone present was placed in handcuffs, including the elderly, including the elderly, leaving disturbed and distressed family in their wake. This is this is like a no-knock, like drug bust or gun bust type approach that was taken to arresting these folks. This, this is not me reading from the story. This is my own editorializing on this type of operation. But uh, again, these people are not drug kingpins these people there was no violence in the alleged crime that they committed they plastered posters and splashed paint onto the windows of a bookstore um they didn't yeah this this is what, uh, this is what i mean this is what i mean about gross disproportionality right like like <laughs> you know this the this is this is a type of police intervention that is typically reserved for an entirely different type of of crime right you know, the, 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 this is a literally traumatic experience, right? Like waking up to someone in your bedroom um, that is usually reserved for, or that is putatively justified on the basis of the seriousness of what is being investigated and the tactical necessity of this type of, of um, uh, police intervention. Um, totally out of proportion with postering and, you know, washable paint on a book conglomerate. <laughs> Right, like the only way that you can again explain what's going on isn't a you know reason reasonable or rational calculus of what was going on. It is the Canadian state's desire to actively and aggressively suppress pro-Palestinian discourse. We're seeing it in the universities. We're seeing it at, at the you know, at the sexual assault center. Here we're seeing it with the police in Toronto. The, there's a very obvious pattern that's happening, and when you understand its ultimate seed is the Canadian state's desire to obfuscate its complicity in international war crimes, uh, then it all right, then it all comes into focus. There's just no other justification for this outrageous use of public resources. Yeah, like the, 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 the amount of people you have to get to coordinate like six or seven different raids all at once, all at the same time across the city, all the warrants you have to get, that is, it's, yeah, millions of dollars is what was estimated. And in their release, the Toronto Police Service said, quote, the investigation remains ongoing and is being treated as a, treated as a suspected hate-motivated offense. And then later on in the, uh, in the release, it says, quote, members of the hate crime unit will provide assistance and support to the divisional investigators in seeking the attorney general's consent to lay these charges, if applicable. These charges are often laid at a later time. Essentially, the TPS are threatening or, or, or heavily intimating that they will be charging these people with hate crimes. Uh, later on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's worth getting into the, like the actual specifics here. So the, the posters that were put up were a picture of Heather Reisman, the CEO of Indigo. Uh, it's a mock book cover featuring a picture of Reisman with the words funding genocide printed on it underneath our, uh, what are obviously a fake quote where it says, I'm happy to use the profits from your purchase to fund the Israeli military and bomb civilians. Again, there's no mention of the fact that Heather Reisman is Jewish. There's no mention of her religious identity. Uh, it simply says that she is funding genocide, and she does. She 
has been the subject of a boycott campaign for over a decade because Reisman is the founder and principal person of a charity that provides cash, straight up cash for people to go serve in the Israeli army. And uh, again, this is the Toronto police directly conflating criticism of Israel, criticism of Zionism with anti-Semitism, with Again, serious, the potential for serious knock-on effects here. No, no, exactly. Well, this is why, this is why, right, lots of critical and radical scholars, myself included, have a lot of skepticism when it comes to, um, you know, the expansion of criminal punishment, even in contexts where it's supposed to be, you know, you know, quote unquote progressive, right? Like, I, you know, I think criminal punishment just in general is an ultimately non-progressive exercise but for those who are more comfortable with it the idea of hate crimes can be appealing right like it's it's oh we should punish people who are who are using um violence or speech to harm vulnerable minorities um and that that's something that we care about um the problem here is that we're in the upside down which is what constantly happens in the context of israel and palestine right these are people who are speaking truth to clear overwhelming power in the context of Canadian foreign policy, right? It is not hateful um, uh, conceptually to critique Israel, Israeli war crimes. It is not hateful to boycott uh, organizations that are complicit in those war crimes. And yet this is what happens. You have something like hate crimes um, institutionalized within the criminal code, and then it's used to go after uh, paradoxically, paradoxically, uh, vulnerable groups. This, you know, there's a similar maneuver in the context of terrorism, right? In the context of terrorism, when you expand the scope of what terrorism can apply to, who is it generally targeted afterwards uh, uh, towards, right? Generally, indigenous land defenders, right? Um, not the white supremacists uh, and the violence that they commit. Um, actually, quite rarely applied in those circumstances. Um, and so, what you see here is actually an outrageous extension of um, what is termed hate crimes, right? Critiquing, um, uh, you know, the racist violence that Palestinians are experiencing couldn't be further from hate crimes. And, and that brings us back to what I was saying earlier about emptying anti-Semitism of meaning, right? This is bad for the Palestinians experiencing genocide in Gaza. It's also bad for Jewish people. This is why there are many Jewish organizations who are opposed to this interpretation of anti-Semitism and who are opposed who are opposed to this overextension of hate crimes. Because again, it makes it harder for us to actually target and stop anti-Semitism, which is a very bad thing. But it's not related to critique of the Israeli state. Yeah, and, and the Toronto Police Service have announced that they are dramatically increasing the size of their hate crime unit. Uh, they are reassigning so many people from other units that, in fact, they are pausing other police work. Uh, that's that's the literal what the literal chief of police is saying in press conferences right now. And this mm-hmm. trend of seeing hate crimes units being used to go after political activists, typically racialized pol- political activists, so this is this is a, a real trend. And uh, you know, I'm policing is a inherently political exercise and. You know, the powerful will not hesitate to use the broad power afforded to them by having, you know, a militarized police force to go after speech and protests and activists that they don't agree with. This is what these actions demonstrate, right? Like all all kind of like head nodding and acknowledgments of the kind of like liberal notions of the separation of these powers is kind of out the window, you know, and and this is also one of the many, many reasons that I am a police abolitionist. But like you know, I think we're coming to the end of our chat here, but like, is there anything that you think people need to walk away from this conversation knowing, especially about this kind of like confluence of, you know, police, hate crimes units and police going after political activists here in Canada? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think it's really important for people to interpret or like, you know, to look at what's going on in very clear terms, right? What we're seeing whether or not it's the protester in Calgary, whether or not it's the protesters in Toronto, we're seeing extraordinarily aggressive and disproportionate state persecution of anti-war protesters. And not just anti-war protesters in general, anti-war protesters in the context of 
an ongoing genocide in which Canada is directly complicit, right? What does that mean? That means if you care about free expression at all, you are appalled by this conduct, right? If you care about racial justice at all, you are appalled by this conduct. And I also just want to note, as you said, you, you know, this is an outrageous use of public funds, right? Uh, I'm, I am also a police and prison abolitionist. Um, what a wonderful invitation for reflection on defunding the police, right? Like these people papered and put washful paint on not some small local bookstore, um, although if it was funding genocide, I would support that too, um, but uh, on, you know, at an indigo, right? In terms of harm, in terms of safety in Canadian society, what an outrageous use of resources. Um, and actually, this is what police funding is routinely spent on, right? Whether or not it's the black activists that you mentioned before, or the Palestinian activists, um, this type of, um, you know, th this excessive funding investment and this, what is ultimately meant to be used as a form of intimidation is a catastrophic waste of money. All of this, all of this focus should be on obtaining a ceasefire, <laughs> right? Like what we should be writing about, thinking about, pursuing is an end to the, um, you know, terroristic destruction of Gaza by the Israeli state. Um, and all of this theater around protests and student letters and chants, right? All of that is because I very genuinely believe if we actually had a sincere and good faith conversation about what's happening in Gaza, everyone would know what is required, which is an end to that genocide. And so we are talking about so many different satellite discussions because the actual discussion will unequivocally be won by Palestine. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Yeah, I don't have much to add, but I just want to remind anyone listening to, you know, stay safe, take care of yourselves and your comrades and just never, ever, ever talk to cops unless you absolutely have to. Correct. I endorse uh, that message. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, yeah, that, that's the end of our time here. Uh, now is the opportunity I give to all of our guests to kind of plug your pluggables. You know, how can people follow along with the work you're doing and what you're up to? What's the best way? Yeah, I have a Twitter account at Joshua Seeley. Um, so I do uh, some, you know, public engagement and communication there. Um, and uh, I have, well, it depends on what kind of stuff you're interested in. My scholarship is, most of my scholarship is posted on SSRN, so you can find that there too. Um, and, uh, but I mean, honestly, right now, just go follow every account right now that's posting from Gaza and attend marches and go stand in support of Palestinian solidarity. I think that's what everyone needs to be doing right now. Absolutely. And folks, um, you know, if you like this podcast, you like this conversation, um, I got a simple request for you. You just need to join the 500 or so other folks who help keep this independent media project going. There will be a link in the show notes, but you can also go to the progressreport.ca slash patrons, put in your credit card, become a monthly contributor. Jim and Jeremy and I would really appreciate it. Also, if you have any notes or thoughts or comments that you think I need to hear, I am very easy to find. You can email me at the Duncan K at progressalberta.ca. And like Joshua, I too am on twitter.com. I'll continue referring to that no matter what Elon Musk says uh, with my handle being at Duncan Kinney. Thank you to Jim Story for editing. Thanks to Cosmic Family Communist for our theme. Thank you for listening and goodbye.